Welcome back to Tuesday with Tim. In this edition, I've got a very special guest, Wayne Sarche, Lieutenant of the Lubbock Fire Rescue. I met Wayne on a very tough day for me, which I know Wayne will explain. I'm looking forward to having Wayne talk about his experience as a firefighter, what he's seen with brain injuries. But before that, Wayne, I would just like to introduce you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell me your background. Well, I'm uh, 51 years old. I've lived in Lubbock, Texas for most of my life. Went to Monterey High School. Graduated from Texas Tech. And uh, got on the fire department back in 2001. Actually, September 17th, 2001, six days after 9-11 happened. So it was a different time in our world to, and kind of a good and bad time to become a firefighter. So... So you've been a firefighter for eight years? 22 years. Excuse me, 22 years. Yes, sir. Why did I say eight? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm... Um, so, go ahead. Yes, I've been a firefighter for 22 years. Oh, well, will be 22 years this September. And um, Can you, before we get into any questions, can you tell me, going into being a firefighter, what you expected? and what you feel now and how much you've learned and certainly I assume you would recommend this position for for others out there listening. Well, I, I always kind of as a kid even was fascinated with it, but I when I went to get on, I didn't know that I would have to become an emergency medical technician at the basic level, an EMTB. And um, so I did it at first because that's what I had to do to be a firefighter. I wanted to fight fire, you know, and, and it's kind of, we often talk about the fire station that it's, you know, we love to go fight fire, but that's somebody's worst day, you know. But um, when I got into, we had to be, we were the first group in Lubbock with the Lubbock Fire Department back then that had to become EMT basics before we even got hired. So I went to, Took the test, knew I was at the top of the list, knew I was likely to get hired. Went to EMT basic school, and I fell in love with it from the day one. The perception when you see a fire truck, you think, well, they're going to, as you said, fight a fire. The percentage of times that you're actually fighting a fire would be what? It's way less than 10%. I mean, in probably way less than 10% are fire-related calls, including commercial and residential activations of alarms, like fire alarms malfunctioning or something like that, but even less than that of an actual fire. Let me take you to a day that that I wish had never happened. July 28th, 2015, I got a phone call that my son Luke was in a golf cart accident. When I got to the scene, I remember getting out of my car and running towards the ambulance that was taking off, and there was an individual that told me, get to the hospital, and that individual was you. Take me back to those moments. Well, that was a bad day for us, too. It was a good day in that my crew, I'm really proud of them, because they did an amazing job that day. I feel like. And uh, had one of the best paramedics on Lubbock Fire Rescue, a gentleman named Cody Nelson. That was he was in charge of the medical portion of that crew. But we um, 
we were out. We weren't at the station when we got the call. We were inspecting a business, doing a business inspection, which is one of our normal jobs that we do throughout the year. And um, we get a call for a, a fall. And so we make our way out of the business, and we realize that it's not in our normal territory. It's in our second-end territory. And we get en route, and we hear the fire engine that's in that territory call on scene on a at a, I believe it was a retirement home that was a, less than a mile away from where Luke's accident was. And um, so we just get that it's a fall, that you know, we, but it's a kid, so you're a little bit ele- higher elevated on that. Not that any, any other call is any less significant, but um, you get a little pucker factor when you start hearing a kid. Well, in the back, Cody just randomly we got our headsets on and we're talking and uh, we haven't gotten any other information and Cody randomly says yeah we this is about two blocks from where we landed a helicopter for a cardiac arrest about I don't remember how five six years ago so okay and uh, then all of a sudden we start from our dispatch center and we get um, we get um, start getting directions of how to get into this area because there's a lot of cul-de-sacs off of the the major thoroughfare there, which is Quaker Avenue. And the accident was at 106th and Salem, and we get told to turn in off 103rd and Quaker. And then we go down the block, two long blocks, and we see a, a gentleman waving us down on 103rd Street, you know, pointing us the way. And it was the, he was part of, I, I believe, the construction crew that, that, that saw the accident and called it in immediately. So, Well, I can tell you this, Wayne, that I'm so appreciative of everything that you and your crew did, uh, not only what you did that day, but coming to visit Luke in the hospital and then being a part of Luke's life um, in the next you know, six, seven years. And so I'm so appreciative of, of all that you've done. I've got a few questions for you uh, concerning... Um, what you do on in the field when it comes to brain injuries. My first one is to what are some common causes of pediatric brain injuries that you encounter in your role as an EMT? Trauma is the number one, various forms. Um, car wrecks, um, falls of various kind. Uh, car wrecks actually w- with car pedestrian, you know, kids not, uh, or the car's not seeing a kid and the kid being in the street and um, I've ran several of those where um, pediatric uh, car pedestrian accidents and we uh, took precautions for head injuries and none none that major on that level. We run football calls sometimes where kids get hurt and we take precautions for head injuries with, with that because of the nature of tackle football. But, uh, yeah, trauma is the number one. You know, I, my son had a friend that, um, kid, a kid that was in a motorcycle accident, and it was found out that he had the wrong size helmet on, and he crashed, and he passed away immediately. And um, so, you know, that's one thing. We When we were kids, we built ramps and ran across streets and jumped our bicycles, and we didn't wear helmets, but now we... You know, it's definitely true what you said that when we were kids, but but the thing that I remember when my children were younger is that 
we rode bikes every day, but we had a helmet on. And I wasn't just that father that, because of Luke's accident, became that careful father. I, I am that way and, and was that way. And, and certainly I'm an advocate now for uh, wearing a helmet, um, whether it's golf carts or riding a bikes or those one wheel things that we see every day, um, as well as um, hoping to, to encourage those to put seatbelts on for golf carts. And, and, um, and so I'm definitely an advocate for that. But um, I guess I have one, one thing that stands out to me is, you know, what is, the, what is the first step or two that you take when responding to a pediatric emergency? And you don't know at the time, of course, whether it's a brain injury, but what are some of the first steps? Well, we're going to, like I said earlier, you know, you get a little bit of a more pucker factor when you hear that it's a pediatric, but there's really, you're going to, you're going to take steps to, to control anything, head breathing and, and make sure that they're, that they're, they're breathing. Okay. Make sure that their oxygen saturations at a, at a level that it should be. And, uh, there's really not a whole lot different than you would an adult to a, to a kid. Wayne, can you share a case where a quick intervention made a significant difference in the outcome of an injury? No, I don't know that. Not not probably three months after Luke's accident, we got a call on a on a rainy day, and it was a, a pediatric drowning. Like I believe the the kid was eighteen months old, and the the grandfather was watching the kid. Well, the kid crawled out through a dog door and he, the grandfather couldn't find him. And then finally looked in the backyard and found the kid in the swimming pool, you know, not conscious. And, uh, we, we responded and they had a privacy fence, seven foot privacy fence. And the front door was something, we got information that we couldn't go through the front door and I'm not really sure why that was but we went around to the side and Cody my paramedic was with us that day and he kind of ran and jumped up over that because it was locked and he kind of stepped up over like pushed off against the fence and up at the same his momentum and he pushed up over and did that and I was like I don't know how I'm gonna be able to top that so I did the same thing kind of ran and put my foot up on the fence and started to push over well Straighten my arms and Cody opens the gate with me. Come, you know, he I should have just let him open the door. So we kind of had a comic relief for a half second, which is oftentimes good in that situation for firefighters to refocus you. And then we came to a lifeless purple blue, eighteen month old, and he had been wet. So we get our AED out, our oxygen out, and. Um, uh, Getting the, one of my guys goes and gets a towel because we have to we have to dry the body off from where it, the body was wet to get um, so we can stick the pads for the, the defibrillator and uh, um, so we're all we're all for doing something and Cody picks the baby up and has him face down with his hand underneath him but on his chest and then he gives him like five back blows and they're pretty. You look, they look like they're mean to be doing it that hard, but you have to do it that hard. And then we flipped him back over. My, my Brady Robnett, my driver at the time, he had gotten the oxygen ready, and we were connecting the, the pads to him. And the, the, the fibrillators we have are 
um, they'll tell us whether we can shock or not. So we we hadn't we didn't shock yet, but we didn't have a pulse. But at that time, and my driver handed me the the back valve mask, and I gave him like three blows of you know breathing for him, and he started coughing, and that was a, a really cool moment for us. You know, when I hear that story, it it. I'm sure everyone listening can feel the same thing. That it is a it is a total team effort, is it not? Oh, definitely. That's that's one of the cool things about the fire department is it's um, you know regardless of who your crew is, you run a call like that, and it's it's definitely bonding. And like Luke and like the this the the drowning that I just explained, and I would imagine also that. When you have those hours when you are at the station and rehashing what happened and and having these feelings, these strong feelings and saving someone's life or uh, the traumatic injury that you've seen has to be something that is powerful to share with each other. You know, in our case with our crew, without going into a whole lot of detail on this side, we felt like this could have after it was out of our hands that we felt like this call could have, with Luke could have gone better. And um, so we we did a lot of hashing out because we we got angry, you know, and we we were not happy with the outcome. Like again, I think it there's a there's we'll never know, but I think the there's a, a good chance that this could have gone gone better. But generally, when you have something like this happen, where wherever it is and with whomever you are um, taking care of, do you have those moments? You're sitting around, in, the, in you know, the lunchroom at, at night, talking about things that you've seen and how um, how it's really touched you. I, I, is it easy to put it in a way, put it to bed, so the next day you're focusing, or do you do you think about these things over time? Oh, I mean, I still think about Luke. And uh, for the most part, I mean, you know, this was hard for the Siegel family, you know, mom, dad, daughters, and but it it gets us also, you know. I think we all four went to to get counseling from this, and I know counseling's helped me a lot through this. So um, it, it, it I can talk about it now, and it doesn't ruin my day. And and so through a process. Called it, <coughs> excuse me, through a process called EMDR, and so that's what helped for me. And and I, I don't want to ever take away the you know what happened to Luke, but you know trying to live my life day to day and and go on. If we if we took in every call, bad call that we went on and and held it inside, we couldn't live. You know so. Well, sharing it with someone, therapist, counselor, and EMDR, I, I'm I'm well aware of all of that, and mm-hmm. and I know that I, it's impossible for me to have moved in the direction you're talking about, where you are not letting it ruin your day. And for me, it's it was about forgiveness. It was about letting go of anger, letting go of bitterness, and and now just keeping his legacy alive. And and this podcast and talking to you and others, uh, hopefully, will will help others in similar situations. 
What are some of the important considerations for parents or caregivers uh, in terms of recognizing and responding to a potential brain injury? First, you got to stay calm. Um, you know, make sure you have 911 called already. And uh, also know, you know, as parents, check into the hospitals around town. See where you want your kid to go, you know. Um, one hospital in town is a level one trauma center, but they're not anything designated pediatric center, that same hospital. Um, the other hospital in town is rated a level two pediatric trauma center. They're also a level two uh, adult emergency center. And you people don't know what that even means. Um, but the only difference in, in, that, that I'm aware of in my research, and I've looked this up because this is one of the situations that came about with Luke, is there was the question of which hospital to go to, and uh, there was a difference in opinion. And um, the, the one hospital that's a level one, the only thing that makes that a level one is they have a burn unit, and they're affiliated with a medical school. That's the only thing. Otherwise, trauma-wise, capability, they're the exact same level. And so, know know where your parent know what know what hospital you need to go to for what. Also, one of these two hospitals is the designated stroke center here in town. They are set up to handle strokes better than the other one. The other one will tell you that. And so. You know, even if you like the other one and you're having a stroke, you need to go to the one that has the that has the stroke care that's that's better for you. So I know that's more adults, but know your hospitals, know where you want to go, and stand firm on it. And um, you know, don't let somebody talk you out of it. You know, if you know you've got your doctor standing at the back of the bay of the emergency room when the ambulance arrives, and you want them to go to that hospital, stand firm on it. And I think that's great advice. Uh, obviously, it, it, it affected our situation, but, but certainly for those out there all over the country, it's certainly good advice to, to keep that in mind. How do you communicate and interact with parents and family members during a pediatric brain injury emergency? My role as the officer on the fire engine is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step up when I realize that's the parents, and I'm going to... I'm going to talk to them. And after after meeting you that day, I don't know if you remembered, I offered to drive your car there. And I know that was a crazy day. And you said, no, you were fine. And since then, I've almost insisted um, in driving, even, even adults with adult people that are sick, that are following. When you can tell that they're, you know, extremely upset, and because um, you want to you want to get there as fast as you can, but what's you know what's a, the average parent that's not a doctor or, or paramedic or something like that going to do in getting there as fast as the ambulance? You know we've we've ran calls where you got family members chasing the ambulances. Well, now we got to call another fire truck and another ambulance to come on them because now they're in a wreck. So it's it's take a deep breath. Um, drive the speed limit and uh, make sure that you get there safely. You know, don't run any red lights. You getting there two minutes earlier is not going to change the impact 
of what happens to your kid in that situation. I'd like to uh, make things a bit lighter for our last question. Okay. Give me the day in the life when you're at the station and you may not get a call for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours. What do we do? Well, it just depends on what station you're at. You know, my station's probably in the middle of the pack. Uh, we run five to eight calls a shift. Sometimes we, every now and then, we don't run any, and sometimes we'll run 12, you know. Um, stations I've been at in the past, um, one of those stations my son is now a Lubbock firefighter, and he's at, and it ain't uncommon that they'll run 18 calls in a shift, you know. So, but it's a it's a brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, team deal. And something, you know, on those shifts that it's slow, you know, it seems like, um, what are we doing, you know? We, we watch the Red Raiders, you know, we watch, we've been watching the Little League World Series like crazy lately, you know. And so there's TV watching, there's, there's car, card we, games, we have any fun, fun? It's our house. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we live there for, you know, 24 out of 72 hours. I'm I'm there for 24 hours, and then I'm off for 48 hours. It's my family. And, you know, we've got a kitchen. We've got a, um, you know, a a dining table. You've been able to come eat with us, you and Luke, in the past. And then, you know, we've got, you saw five big old recliners there with a a big screen TV. Now, we pay for all, like, the TV and our cable and our Internet for personal use. We pay for that out of our own pocket. Uh, we pay for our own food. The city provides, you know, obviously the kitchen and the place where we live. But there's three refrigerators because there's three shifts. And we never steal ice cream out of, you know, the other shift's freezer or anything ever, you know. But I'm joking, obviously. But, um, you know, we, we we like to talk about we're, we get paid for what we might have to do. You know, um, the... 3 a.m. cardiac arrest, the the fire in the middle of the night. I get, you know, you get your sleep messed up sometimes because you get, and, and sometimes it's three, four, five, nothing calls, you know, not not significant calls. It's significant to the person calling 911, but, it, it you know, they don't know from the, the 911 call whether we're needed or not, you know, so they send us to make sure. And... If we end up getting up five times in the middle of the night and we don't really do anything, that messes with your next day, you know, and, and then it messes into your next evening with your family. And so, but, you know, we so we get paid for what we might have to do a lot of times. And so you take the good with the, you take the, the good times of, you know, getting the, the bonding, the the watching the sports events and you know, sometimes we just have movie night and sometimes it takes you know four hours to watch an hour and a half movie because you have to stop it you know but it's a rewarding career but you have to take the good with the bad you know and so um the the public wonders why when they come to a station tour why we've got recliners and beds and all that stuff there but you know we live there and uh, we promise we've got, I think our average is less than four minutes from the time, you know, you, there's a 911 call of getting to your house. Then that's not always, but sometimes it's less than that. So, Well, what, what, what I can tell you from my walks around the track 
every day and I see your engine 12 drive by and and now I'm much more focused when I see different fire trucks and ambulances but there there's no greater feeling than helping someone else especially during traumatic times and and I'm experiencing that every day when I talk to families whose children have had a brain injury but yours is much more um, emergent and right. I just want to to thank you for what you did on July 28th 2015 but but every day following that and your support and and more importantly for what you do in general and so Wayne uh, Wayne Sarchet I can't thank you enough this is a very important day for me not an easy day to relive July 28th 2015 but I'm honored to be friends with someone who means so much to me this is Tim Siegel with Tuesday with Tim.